This episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast is sponsored by AWS Energy. AWS brings the most advanced and secure cloud services and deep industry expertise across energy, utilities, and sustainable energy sectors. Together with a broad partner ecosystem, AWS is accelerating the energy transition through practical innovations to deliver energy efficiently, reliably, sustainably, and responsibly. Learn more at aws.amazon.com energy. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Greg Semler, CEO of InPipe Energy. InPipe Energy is an energy recovery system and provides pressure management for water transportation infrastructure. There's a lot of big words here, so let's get Greg on the mic to break these down and explain the importance of this energy recovery system. So Greg, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and a quick introduction to InPipe Energy. Sure, great to see you, Joe. Thanks for having me. So uh, my background is an entrepreneur. I've spent my whole career uh, building companies, uh, first in the medical industry, and then the last 25 years focused on energy and water. Okay. What made you want to switch over to from from medical into energy and water? How did that transition occur? Well, I was living in the Bay Area um, right around the year 2000, and I was um, basically the CEO of medical device companies working for venture capitalists. And at that time, the uh, investment community really didn't want to invest in medical devices. They really wanted to purely invest in convergence, the internet, IT, um, and that sort of thing. And so I was recruited by Stanford Research, a think tank in Menlo Park, to spin out some technology that focused on fuel cells, so clean energy uh, for, in this case, consumer electronic devices. And so um, I went to Sand Hill Road, raised some capital, and spun a company called Polyfuel out into its own independent company and started my focus on the clean energy space. That is, it's interesting to think about how how the the appetite or the interests of, of where the money is ultimately drives what is being done. And I think you see that today, especially in the oil and gas industry versus the, the clean tech or energy transition or renewable energy space. 
in that a lot of people want to, there, there are quite a few people making that transition into clean energy because they simply can't raise funding for oil and gas projects anymore. But it's, it's interesting to hear how in, in this example that you gave, the, the jump into clean energy was not necessarily the, it wasn't any type of, of deep uh, ethos or environmental push. It was just simply the, the desire to no longer be in the medical space, but now into cool, hip technology. Well, I, yeah, I love building companies. And so um, the uh, SRI, Stanford Research, was looking for somebody to create a company with this new energy technology. And they're kind of like a think tank. So their business model is sucking money out of the government and, and you know, doing basic research. And they'd done this basic research and they'd had some success um, building companies based on their IP. So they needed somebody like me who loves building companies, raising capital, building teams, finding customers. And so they thought I would be ideally suited to uh, go on this mission. And so to your point, I didn't know anything about energy or fuel cells or anything like that. But the, the process of raising capital, you know, motivating a team, um, commercializing technology is pretty similar across across uh, different industries. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it is unique to hear about having you on You're you're focused on business. You're focused on building, building great companies. And, and that's how you got into clean energy. How does, how does that, I guess, where does InPipe come in? Well, so, yeah, I, I love the process of building companies and getting customers to like what, you know, we're making and marketing and selling and including their input into our product development process. So I've spent my whole career with engineers, um, but I'm not an engineer. So what I, what I um, often say is, you know, I like doing things like raising money, hiring people, motivating people, building teams and so forth. They don't like doing that, yeah. but I can't do what they do. So that's, that's how I got here. Now, how I got to InPipe was I, I spent a significant amount of time, 10 years building energy companies. And then I got recruited to uh, be the CEO of a, of a water company, a sort of a water energy company. It was a company called Lucid Energy, and um, it was being seeded by a very large uh, water company, an industrial company. And they contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in that at that time in investing in the company. So and I said I would do due diligence on it, which I did. And about five months later, the CEO of that company said, well, Greg, you obviously love building companies. Why don't you leave the venture fund you're at called Pivotal Investments, join the company as CEO, I'll move the company to Portland, Oregon, where I was, and we'll put in a couple million dollars more. So that's that's how I got into water. And um, at Lucid Energy, we were commercializing a novel turbine, essentially a round turbine, Hmm. which was like a wind turbine. 
It had five blades along a vertical axis that was go inside of a round pipeline and spin and create energy from it. And, I, and, I, and the idea was essentially to build a wind farm inside of a water pipeline. So not, so, you know, it'd basically be free energy in a water pipeline. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We commercialized that technology in Riverside, California and in Portland, Oregon, had people visiting from all over the world. Uh, it, was, it was really, really uh, interesting. But what I, what I realized was after uh, four years of working in that, in that area, that there was, there was a much bigger opportunity working with smaller water utilities that, and, and also to go from essentially a custom one-off solution, which is what hydro typically is, to a, custom, to a standardized solution. So I went to our board at the time and I said, you know, what we're doing is cool. I love it. It's, it's you know, it's exciting, but we needed to change the product platform uh, in order to overcome some of the inherent challenges that we were experiencing in the market. Um, and they said, no, we really want to focus on the IP around this novel turbine. Um, and I said, OK, I'm going to leave. And then I left and I started in pipe energy with the idea of creating a product line that would be as easy for people to purchase as a control valve and that could be integrated into pressurized water pipelines to produce a new source of renewable energy. Okay. So what I saw was that uh, water is conveyed similarly all over the world. There's millions and millions of miles of pressurized water pipelines. And so when the water's moving through those pipelines as pressure, uh, that's energy. It's, it's sort of analogous to oil pipelines. So everybody knows about oil pipelines underneath the ground. Well, water pipelines operate the same way. But there was no, there was no oil well to tap into in the water sector. And so essentially, um, InPipe has developed a, a well, uh, like, a, like a water well. It, I mean, we're making up those terms. But it, the, uh, basically a system that can integrate into existing pressurized water pipeline infrastructure and, and basically produce a consistent, reliable, predictable, low-cost source of hydroelectricity. And the benefit of it is it has no environmental impact. Yeah. And that's really what drew me to the opportunity was I wasn't aware of any source of energy that has no environmental impact. But in this particular case, that's what we have. Yeah. And that that's what was exciting to me was this is baseload electricity with no environmental impact. Yeah, that's that is very exciting. And I, I think there's something that that as as one of those engineers that you work with, granted, I'm not an engineer, I'm a geologist, but there's something that maybe maybe the business folks take for granted in that you were pointing out that you've developed this really cool, awesome technology, but it it's a one-off. It is a, and what that relates to is that for that technology, there's a very small limited market and it, it didn't really have the scaling potential. It had a, it was a great solution and it has a good, good opportunity to fix a problem, but the idea of what you're talking about with InPipe is this massive, massive miles, millions of miles of pipeline and pressured water 
that that you can now tap into. I, I think it's just in case for all of the engineers listening, it is important to understand the scalability of that solution that you're developing. And so that's that's very exciting to hear about. Now, as we talk about things like baseload, zero environmental impact, um, I want to get into those, but I also want to make sure just in case, because it's been a little while since I've had somebody talking about waste energy or, or energy recovery systems and, and specifically in pipelines. So, so let's break down what is, we're talking about pressured water pipelines and some type of energy recovery. What, what exactly is in pipe in terms of what, what are we doing here? We're, we're putting a turbine in a pipeline, I guess, can you explain it a little bit more and, and what is the, what's the reason? Why do we need that? Yeah. Um, so water is conveyed similarly all over the world and it has been done this way for 5,000 years. And so typically what happens is water utilities pump water up a hill at night when energy costs are low, store it in a reservoir or overhead tank and then distribute it through miles and miles of pressurized water pipelines into their service area. And that pressure either comes from pumping or it comes from gravity. And embedded in those pipelines are valves. And these valves are used to control pressure. And they do a great job of controlling pressure. And so when you turn on the tap in the morning, the water comes out at the right pressure or your, your chemical plant you know, needs water at a certain pressure, or your refinery needs water at a certain pressure. So what people managing water infrastructure are doing is they're managing flow and pressure in a water pipeline. It's, it, it, it's, it's pretty much, that's what they're trying to do to ensure that you have the right experience. Turn on the tap, water comes out, it's coming out the right pressure, love that. So, so what, those, those, those valves use uh, a friction mechanism, sort of like the brakes in your car or crimping a hose. They, they have a diaphragm that's used to basically burn off pressure. So the pressure's coming down the hill from the reservoir. The valve's there to burn off that pressure. And, and, um, and then you turn on the tap and it's at the right pressure. But in that, in that process, they're wasting potential energy. Just like the brakes in your car, in your Prius, when you, when you put your foot on the brake, you're creating friction that brings your car to a halt. But Prius uh, has regenerative braking. And that's essentially what we're doing at InPipe Energy. We've created a regenerative braking system that adds, that basically replicates the functionality of the, of the valve so it, it allows water uh, operators to precisely manage flow and to control pressure. But instead of wasting that pressure by burning it off, it uses a microturbine that spins, spins a generator, which connects to the grid and produces energy. And so it's all designed to be very simple and practical so that um, it can be scaled rapidly. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is a, a great explanation. And it, 
it actually, as you were explaining it, it, the thing that popped in my mind is like almost around the world then, since everybody does it the same way, we are essentially storing pumped hydropower and then we're just throwing it away is and and exactly that's exactly (laughs) how i see it and and that really what we have is the building blocks of a distributed network for doing pumped hydro storage yeah yeah that's exciting so let's let's talk about a few a few more details first off when we look at the size of the market, do you have an idea of how big this market potential is either in the U S or worldwide or some type of metric like that? Yes. So we worked with a very uh, well-known valve company in the United States and estimated that there are about two to 3 million of these valves uh, across the United States. We then further sort of, you know, uh, reduce the number of total valves to say we could we could take about 10 percent of those valves, about 250,000 of them, uh, which we saw in uh, pipe diameters of 18 inches and larger. So fairly large pipelines that could produce at least 50 kilowatts of power. So they, so these valves come in various sizes. Um, and obviously there's a lot more smaller ones than bigger ones. But, and so when we look at the market, we estimated with this valve company that we could recover about 12 gigawatts of potential energy. Wow. Enough electricity for about 12.6 million homes in the United States and offset about 1, 1.2 billion tons of carbon and also save the water industry about $30 billion in energy expenditures that they could then use to reinvest into a more robust water infrastructure. Yeah, those are are very serious numbers. When so to to get to that scale, I know we could do the mental math of of the all the different numbers and fifty kilowatts, two hundred fifty thousand valves you could replace. Um, but I'm sure you already know the answer. What is the size? of any individual project. It sounds like you target 50 kilowatts. Do they go smaller? Do they go larger than that? Sure, yeah. So we we um, the so we have a sales funnel of uh, about 100 qualified projects. The average is about 120 kilowatts, which produces about 800,000 kilowatt hours of electricity a year. So when I say that, it's a big number, but it's about four times more electricity that you could create with an equivalent size solar farm. So what what makes hydroelectricity so compelling and what Impipe is doing is we're producing electricity around the clock. And so because you're generating so much more, so many more kilowatt hours, the cost of energy is significantly lower than with other sources of renewable energy because you have that utilization around the clock for 30 years, for a long time, compared to uh, more traditional sources of renewable energy. So we see projects that range in size anywhere from, say, 20 kilowatts of power, enough electricity for, say, 20 homes, up to uh, one, uh, one and a half megawatts. So we have three projects 
that are one and a half megawatts in size that are just from wasted uh, pressure in the conveyance of water. And that's the and that's you know in a pretty short period of time that we've been looking for projects. That is exciting how how large some of these can get and and how many projects you're already seeing into that that sales funnel into that that pipeline, so to speak. Yeah, it's really exciting. I wanna I wanna take a step back and think about I guess the 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 question is how did you how or, or why or, or where did the idea come from? So even even maybe before InPipe, when you see this, how did you realize that there's all this wasted energy and and why did you start to think about how can we solve this problem? Well, let's think about what's what's the problem that we're trying to solve. We're trying to solve the problem that, you know, water is the most important resource on the planet, but the cost of water and the availability of fresh, clean drinking water is is at risk. And we read about it in the paper all the time. But the challenge is, is that what what the water industry is very fragmented. And it's and it's and it's also doesn't have the sexiness that energy does. And at the same time, it's very, very energy intensive. It takes an enormous amount of water to deliver energy and an enormous amount of energy to deliver water. So I got here really by just learning, you know, as much as I could about how water worked. And as I described the infrastructure, what I realized is that, you know, water is really important. But when I saw like in Houston last year during the storm, when the grid went down and people were without water for four or five days, I thought that was pretty staggering to see because while energy is obviously really, really important to our everyday lives, if you turn on the tap and water doesn't come out, it's really a bad day. So I'm really driven by the idea that in in a world of climate disruption, caused by climate change and just, you know, growth of the planet and all of that. How do we ensure that water is still being delivered to factories and facilities and agricultural uh, uh, situations, as well as people's homes and businesses? Um, How do we make sure that happens? And that's really what we're trying to do at InPipe Energy. We're trying to create a system that ensures that even when the grid operators turn off the electricity, water will still be available. And so we're seeing like in California where I am, the electric grid operators can turn off the, the, the grid whenever there's high winds or the threat of a, of a forest fire or something like that. But that wreaks havoc on, on the distribution of water. And with, with simply 24 hours notice that they give their biggest customers, these water utilities, we need to find a way to build resilience for cities and water operators. And that's really what uh, motivates me. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, and something we don't think about, we usually take for granted the access to water and hundred percent. Yeah. So, yeah. So how exactly does InPipe and, and the system that you've developed, how does that build in resilience to the ability to, say, deliver water and have that be something that can't be disrupted? 
So, so um, in, in most of the cases of um, where we have the system uh, in the field today working, we're powering critical infrastructure. So, so we, in uh, one case, we're powering a local sports complex. In another place, we're powering uh, EV infrastructure. Uh, we're about to distribute a product to uh, Australia in Melbourne, Australia to the water agency there, where we're replacing gen sets. So, so not only are we reducing the carbon footprint for the water utility there, but we're also building resilience by basically putting, putting uh, the energy from the hydro excess into a backup storage device. So those are all ways that I see that we are uh, improving resilience uh, within uh, cities and water utilities. Okay. And let's talk about the, the actual system itself. Is it a a is it a one for one kind of just replacing the existing infrastructure, or is there is there more to it than that? Well, there's more to it than that. In fact, we don't change the existing infrastructure. So I've spent the last six years really trying to overcome every objection that a water utility and an electric utility could make to adopting this technology. And so one of the key um, insights that I get, got from working at Lucid was people managing water pipeline infrastructure don't like to put things in the pipes, right? So the, pipe, the pipes are old, they're aging, they're leaking, they're not, they, you know, and the people managing that, they know that. And that's what they do is they take care of it because there's not enough capital to replace it. So what happens is so... So what we did at Lucid, I mean, at Lucid was we put the turbine in the pipe and it was really elegant because it was around a round turbine and a round pipe. It spun around at in pipe. We basically create a bypass. So we keep the existing valve where it is and we create a bypass, which is a small loop around the existing valve. We put the hydro excess in the middle of the bypass. So it's co-located where the existing valve is. So they, they have both. And then we use software and our control system to manage the water going through the bypass loop and, and the valves that ensure the downstream pressure is exactly what the water utility needs it to be. And so all of that is integrated into their SCADA system so that they can operate it and maintain it as part of what they're doing. But, the, but we don't change their existing system. So our system literally gives them the choice. They can manage the flow and the pressure just like they're doing today. Or they can use the hydro excess and basically generate a new source of renewable energy. So we've tried to, we have eliminated that risk factor that they have to worry that there's something new in the pipeline that could break or could leach, or just another another challenge that they're not aware of, which was which has been a really important piece of reducing the perceived risk with with our customers. Yeah. I, so when I guess that I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question because it sounds like if if you've got this system and you're you're adding it to it's fully additional you're not 
you're not changing out their their pipeline you're not changing out the existing valve this is purely an add-on and they can choose to use it or not i guess there's there's two questions here one is there ever a time where they just they buy it and then don't use it and never switch over to it and two it in that sense it seems like just a just an added cost to them and maybe i i feel like that's a that is something to overcome as well that maybe we haven't talked about yet yeah that's an interesting it, it, you know that is possible it's never happened our our biggest supporters are the operators themselves like they really love it because they know that they're wasting pressure, that they're wasting energy in these valves that they work with every day. So I've had say, I've had water saying, this is so cool. You know, I told my kid I'm saving the planet now, you know, so that, you know, it, it hasn't happened. It is, you know, it is possible that they would say, let's ignore it, but it's really, um, it really takes advantage of stuff that they're very familiar with and we train them and we work with them as part of the sales process. So, so, so far they, they, you know, like I said, our biggest, our biggest fans are the operators uh, of these, of these water utilities. And that's why in the current, in the systems that we currently have in place, we were, we are, uh, we have repeat customers. Yeah. That's great. That's, that's good to hear that they're not just buying it and, and letting it collect, collect mothballs. So the, while you were talking, you said two things that jumped out to me, a sports complex and EV infrastructure. To me, those two don't sound like, not at this time, they don't sound like critical infrastructure. How can you, can you explain that a little bit? Why are those two, um, why are those two some of the examples that that you've highlighted here? How let's talk about those a little bit. Yeah. So so um, in the case of the sports complex, uh, you know, this is this is a city. And so the sports complex is pretty important. And they want to show that they're reducing costs of energy and and carbon. And it just turns out that the, um, you know, the sports complex uses a lot of fossil fuels when it's operating and it's, and it's about 200 feet away from the, uh, hydro excess facility. So it just made sense from an economic perspective, as well as the public relations perspective to offset the energy cost there. Um, and there's EV charging infrastructure that could be used. Again, they're, they're trying to educate their population about the benefits of renewable energy and they're getting an economic benefit. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a win-win for them. Yeah. Um, in terms of the school, I mean, this is just wasted energy. So, uh, and so I think it's pretty cool that in this sort of rur- small rural town that the water utility is excited enough to basically take what could be their energy, but instead share it with a local high school and set up EV charging infrastructure at that school, which currently doesn't have any. So to me, it's pretty progressive in terms of how they're thinking about it. 
And uh, the head of engineering there said, you know, what I really want to do is also there's a Purdue, a Purdue chicken factory down the road as well, where they're processing chickens because I want to put a hydro excess in there too, because he knows they have a control valve there also. Uh. And he's like, they're wasting energy too. So, you know, that's kind of the mindset that eventually comes around. And in, and in the water industry, there's not a lot of these opportunities. You know, they, they are, they are um, using uh, solar energy where they can. Uh, they haven't really started deploying batteries very much because of the primarily because of the cost. But um, but they are very interested in looking for solutions. And I think uh, the Hydro XS is a really obvious solution for them that is core to how they manage their infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. And, and I guess that brings us back full circle to the idea that that there's there's two major challenges that really three major challenges that you're helping with here. There's the the excess water use and energy use associated with water. And then there is the wasted energy. And then of course, being able to to save energy or produce energy, save water, and do that in a profitable, economic, business-focused way that it's really a win-win-win. So that's for, for 30 years, for a long time. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. And I think that that all, that all makes sense. It sounds so, I mean, as you explain it, it sounds obvious. So I guess the, the natural question is, is why, why are, why isn't everybody doing this? Yeah. Well, the, the, re, the reason that um, everybody's not doing it, because everything I've ever done in my entrepreneurial career, people always say, oh, yeah, I thought about that when I was eight years old, and, uh, <laughs> but I didn't do it. The, the, the challenge in energy and in water is that these are very regulated industries mm. and they're mission driven. Energy companies deliver energy. Water companies deliver water. And InPipe is at the nexus of energy and water or energy and water. And so it's challenging because from a regulatory perspective, there is no uh, Department of Energy and Water. And so it's really, so you really have to uh, work directly with, you know, facilities people uh, or uh, uh, water operators. You, you really have to go and work, you know, um, face-to-face in the industry and then you know 10 miles down the road is a whole nother organization with its own bureaucracy that you have to work through and 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 oh and the, the good news is they don't compete with each other mm-hmm. right but the, but the unfortunate news is it is that it's it, it's fragmented yeah and typically no one wants to be first because they don't want to take that uh, operational risk you know but once we proved, like in Hillsboro, that we'd been operating for three years without any incident and the maintenance costs were really low, we've gotten a, a pretty huge explosion of uh, new project opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's structural. I think the challenge is structural, um, which, by the way, I think is the challenge of achieving our climate goals is that, you know, if we're if we're going to achieve our climate goals, it's going to be very, very difficult 
if we re- if we just rely on local public utility commissions to make up their mind on how they want to uh, build out the grid. Yeah. It's just too slow and and ends up being a tapestry of opportunities. Um, so I'm a strong advocate of some sort of a national plan that that can be bought into uh, by the operators, the grid operators, and then all of us technology uh, providers can basically design our systems to ensure that it's safe and reliable. But unless we do something sort of on a very large scale to uh, reduce the bureaucracy, all of this isn't going to happen fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a, that helps us understand. And I think that's a great, great answer, a great time to transition into my final questions. These are the questions I ask all my guests. Um, I'm, I'm going to stick with the normal order, even though we started answering the second question. So the first question is, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So, so I'm an artist. I, I, I love creativity. And so I think um, the book that I would um, uh, uh, suggest to people is they read Big Magic um, from Elizabeth Gilbert. So Elizabeth Gilbert is the woman that wrote uh, Eat, Pray, Love that some of your uh, listeners might uh, listen to, but she wrote a book called Big Magic. And it's really for anybody that's interested in creativity. It's a really easy read, but it really inspires you to think about how how you can do things more creatively in your life. All right. Yeah, I will have to add that one to the list. So the next question, we started to get into it. And please do elaborate. How do we get to net zero? You were talking about the idea of of breaking down these structural barriers and developing a large national plan. Is that what we need to do on a on a global scale in order to get to net zero as a society or or what other suggestions? How yeah. else do we get there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I think that um if there was a way to get countries around the world to agree to uh, certain standards uh, and certain requirements uh, that that would pave the way for achieving net zero. But if all we can do is focus on the United States um, or even focus on a state, you know, but really focus on the United States, so that um, you know, people making uh, renewable energy systems or wind systems or hydro systems, uh, efficiency, all, all the technology really already exists, but there, there's this huge bureaucracy that exists essentially to maintain the status quo. I mean, we, we, all, know, we all know that. And then there's examples of cities or states or counties doing innovative things that could really be interesting and exciting, but it might be three to five years before they'd be able to do it in another jurisdiction. And so it just seems to me like, um, you know, uh, the federal government, the Department of Energy, or however these things get done, is that they just, they mandate some rules about the grid. And just like I think, uh, well, in California anyway, they outlawed, uh, gas, uh, gas powered vehicles, I think in 2035. 
And I know, you know, that's pretty controversial and, and, and pretty surprising, obviously, and it, uh, to me, but they did that. And so, and so I assume people are going to comply with that, but climate change is even bigger than that. And so, you know, I, I would just push to, it's a, it's a regulatory problem that we have. We have a regulatory problem uh, bringing new technology to the market. Our customers have a reg- have regulatory standards that they're, you know, ab- abiding to. And so the only way to change things is to change the regulatory environment in such a way that it gets to where we want to go. So we need to create sort of a national plan and then, you know, make the plan and then work the plan. Yeah, that is a, it, it's a great, great idea. And it, it is probably harder done than said, but if, if we could get behind a, a, a national plan, I think we could, we could move mountains but ideally not yeah. move mountains, move mountains of CO2 <laughs> somewhere else. Yeah. 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 So now the, the last question is you actually get to ask me a question. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious because you talk to uh, innovators all the time and entrepreneurs. And um, I know, I think you're associated somehow with Amazon. I think they're either a sponsor or, you know, how, I'm just curious, like how, how do we get, uh, like big companies like Amazon to really participate in bringing innovation to the market. That is, that's a great question. And I think that there, there's a lot of different, different ways that people are, are tackling it. I think, you'll appreciate as a, as a businessman, as a serial entrepreneur, ultimately what ends up being valuable is that thing where you, where you can see a benefit to society and also a net positive return on your investment in terms of, of finances. So examples that I can give right off the bat are, are people like Schneider Electric very large company developing a an open source platform for for automation that is because they see the value in being able to to bring in new ideas and new innovation through open source coding and and they want to to help that innovation because it's going to be better for the environment and ultimately they see value in doing that from for their business and it's the same with with Amazon and AWS specifically, and their involvement with the, I think it's the OSDU, it's or ODSU, something. I will have to go back and check on that. But it's open data or open source data platform or something like that. But that's one where it's a whole lot of free data that is open source. And the whole idea is that you can now develop solutions around that open data. And so they support that. They have they they are developing solutions associated with the OSDU. And and those are opportunities for them as a business to to grow and develop and and provide solutions that are also better for 
for energy development and and ultimately better for society. So I think that those are those are the ways really similar to what you're saying where you find where you find win-win or win-win-win situations that is how companies get excited. And yeah. I think there are there if you're too early stage if you're still still really new in development, a very new startup, that that whole win-win-win situation is not as clear. And that's maybe why a large company is not as interested. And then mm. that I would say is also for certain sectors of of energy transition. Large companies still don't see the the complete overall triple win value. And I think we just need to show them where that value is. And once they see the value, then then I would say they're, I feel like they're all in at that point. Yeah, then it scales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, I really appreciate uh, the conversation, Joe. It's great. It's great that you're, you're doing this. Uh, I think it serves a great purpose. Well, Thank you. Thank you for joining me. And thank you for everyone for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. If you're into stickers, I have a way you can get some from us. Go to my show notes, find the one question survey link, go fill that out. And if you do, we will send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email. That email is ETS at OGGN.com. If you don't use email, find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.